Nancy Wyman, state Democratic chairwoman. Nancy, thanks so much for being here. And with us today is Nancy Wyman. This is the Donkey Talk Podcast with your host, Connecticut Democratic Party chairwoman, Nancy Wyman. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Nancy Wyman. And today they have a special guest um, on the show, somebody that I've known for very, very many years. And the first time I met him, um, he, it was in a basement of somebody's house when he was campaigning to be a congressman. And there was about 15 people there. And of course, it was my first opportunity to ever met somebody that was running for Congress. And this man came into the basement and talked to all of us, talked about every issue that anybody could be interested in. But he was sitting there and there was a man there at that time who was about 80 something years old. He happened to be the town chairman, Democratic town chairman's father. And the, the elderly gentleman was so excited about meeting this young man and talking to him and how this then now became, then became a congressman, um, how he kept him so interested and giving so much of himself to the, the elderly, at the same time talking about the issues that, you know, a young mother like I was at that time was very interested in, to, to all the interesting things of, of those days. So today it's kind of my honor and privilege to really have, um, have Sam Gatenson, former congressman from the 2nd Congressional District, on our play, on our show today. You know, he was born in, in the displaced person's camp, um, in Germany, grew up on a dairy farm in Connecticut, but in Basra. Um, he worked in the Grasso administration and served both at the, as a state representative and, of course, in Congress from 1981 to 2001. And now he does some great work at the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity. Um, Sam, welcome. It's really such an honor to to be with you, and I'm so glad that you came to be with us. And I'm going to ask the regular questions, and then we'll go into other things. But I think everybody would like to know how you did get started in politics, and you know, and why you did. Well, that uh, meeting we met at in Ellington at Yale Cantor's uh, basement um, was part of the reason that got me into politics. And the reason that elderly gentleman, his father, was interested in listening to me was because I could speak to him in Yiddish. <laughs> and the reason I spoke Yiddish, my parents had survived World War II in Europe as Holocaust survivors. And when they came here, uh, it wasn't that um, they just wanted to preserve the family's language. And so if you wanted to eat at home, you spoke in Yiddish. And the good news for me was I learned English from the Yankees across the street. And so my English is relatively without an accent, as is my Yiddish. And a lot of people who came, I came over when I was 18 months old. And a lot of people who came over at 18 months have the same accents their parents had because their parents immediately wanted to speak to them in English. So uh, I think, what, you know, whether it's a boatload of uh, Jewish people off the coast of Cuba on the U.S. St. Louis that were turned back to Europe and killed in the Holocaust, or uh, as I was a teenager, a boatload of Vietnamese in the South China Sea, or today refugees from around the world. There's really no difference. And if you look at the old and the young, you definitely don't see any difference. Usually uh, people of adult age, you look at the clothing style or something, you say, well, that's a lot different. But 
So I saw what was happening in a lot of places around the world, and that's what first energized me. And so my first campaign was the Duffy campaign in 1970, and uh, I thought he had the courage to say what was needed. And you have to tell people what the Duffy campaign was, because a lot of our people Yeah, of course, too know. young. But he ran as a progressive, and um, he was beaten by Lowell Weicker, who ran as a Nixon Republican, <laughs> and later to Nixon's regret. And so, um, you know, I, I started working on other people's campaigns. I worked on the Muskie campaign because I thought he could beat Nixon. And to show you how you shouldn't listen to me, uh, I thought Nixon was the worst president the country would ever have. I said, nobody will be this bad. By the way, Nixon was for a guaranteed annual income. He created the EPA. He was for a pretty good health care plan. So, you know, while we were cursing Nixon in those days, it turned out there could be worse, and, and it, it turned out to be a Reagan. And so here I am, elected to Congress in 1980, and I know to some parts of the country today, Reagan's a hero, but he didn't know what was going on, and he, but he did pick pretty decent staff. Um, but he did a lot of bad things. He fired the controllers and all that for no, no reason at all, but just to look tough and anti-union. Um, and um, I thought that was the worst of it. George Bush the first was kind of eh, namby-pamby. He was a decent guy in the old days. He moved to the right with the Republican Party. And uh, I thought that was bad, but not terrible. And then George Bush Jr. came along, and I said, oh, this is the absolute worst. And uh, of course, we now have a president who proves I was wrong consistently, because it is stunning how terrible uh, this president is. And it's not from a partisan perspective. It's from an American perspective. Uh, this country is where it is because, one, the respect for law. This president has no respect for law. He's using, he's trying to get the G7 to meet at his uh, hotel down in Florida. I mean, to enrich yourself by your position as president is unseemly. And, and people haven't brought this up. Jimmy Carter, when, and I wasn't a big fan, when he got elected president, sold his peanut business, not because the president was going to do anything to affect the price of peanuts, but just the appearance that him being president and agricultural policy might be affected by his owner, sold his business. And, you know, it's completely transparent. So we're in a very dangerous place as a country, and I know there are other things you want to discuss, but every American really has to step forward, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, or an independent. Uh, and immigrants built the country, not, not me. I didn't contribute that much. I benefited a lot from the country. But anybody who's sitting at a computer and using an Apple computer is using a Syrian immigrant son's computer. And if we'd stop that Syrian from coming into the country, Apple might exist, but it wouldn't exist in the United States. And if you look at the Nobel laureates we have every year, all of them or most of them are often people from another country because they're hungrier, they hustle, and they enrich America. The great strength of this country is because we let immigrants in. Now, we can't let everybody in, and I understand that. But if you look at Japan, Japan's economic crisis is fundamentally a, a, a result of an aging population with, that's not being rejuvenated uh, by immigration. So anyway, I think we've hit the worst, I hope. I hope we'll survive this president as a great nation. We've lost our status around the world. We've lost our values in this country. Uh, the damage he's trying to do to the environment is just stunning. And, and if you look at the, I, I remember, you know, in the news covered the Cuyahoga River being on fire. I mean, a, a river 
of water burning because of the chemicals in it. And I remember we couldn't afford a car with air conditioning. I'm not sure they had air conditioning when I was a kid. But we would drive on Route 32 from Basra uh, to Ocean Beach in New London. And when we went through the Four Corners in Montville, even at a hot, humid day, we would roll the windows up because the stench of the water coming off the paper mills in Montville. And what would happen is it would change color depending on what color they were printing. And I'm not talking a slight shade. I'm, we're talking vibrant yellows, vibrant reds. I mean, they poured everything into the river. And in, in, in Sprague, I worked at MS Chambers, and the person I worked for had bought it from an old company. They used to pour acid into the stream. When they had acid they were finished with, they just opened the spigot and poured it into the river. And now we can put coal sludge into rivers again. Well, you know, it's the next generation and this generation to pay for these things. Of course, climate change, where every scientist in the world's on one side, uh, our president thinks it's a Chinese plot. It's just insanity. It's absolutely amazing. And it's amazing how many, though, the issues that you talk about from when you were younger to what is going on now, we have, we see good changes, but we also see some things that are happening now that are bad changes. And anybody that talks about immigration in our country, if you're not an American Indian, right? You, <laughs> and are, even they came here; <laughs> they just came earlier. But but you're you are an immigrant, and and we have seen so many things that's gone on. I, I think a little bit though, Sam, of, of, of when you were in um, the General Assembly which is kind of interesting years ago, about um, you also didn't have a car. Well, I had a car at the beginning. It broke down. It broke down. <laughs> and you want to tell people what happened when you had to get to the Capitol? Well, I hitchhiked. <laughs> and I was always in favor of hitchhiking even before I needed it. And I remember once being at a Democratic meeting in the 70s as they were building the state uh, pl party platform. And I recommended putting in a provision for legal hitchhiking stations. To make it safe, you would go to a spot on the highway, sign your name and address, and then the person who picked you up would sign in. And so there'd be legal places uh, to hitchhike. And So, I, so you the, really began Uber. Anyway, I wish I had. I, I, anyway, so C. Perry Phillips, who I think was a judge and a a legal mind for the Democratic Party said, well, we can't call it hitchhiking. Maybe we can call it non-gratuitous interdigital transportation. <laughs> and everybody laughed, and that was the end of my great plan. That's a shame, because yeah. you have gone. Anyway, so I had a Pinto with 142,000 miles on it. As a state rep in those days, we got 6,500 the good year and 4,500 the second year. And I didn't want to have a, you know, I didn't want to be part time and I didn't want to work for some company who could decide whether or not I could go or be in conflict with. And I was living at home with my parents, so it was pretty easy to be idealistic. Um, and then I got married and, and I left because I couldn't afford to stay. But so we got 6,500 the good year, 4,500 the bad year. And the Pinto, you know, was a pretty good car if nobody hit you in the rear end. They used to explode, apparently. But mine didn't explode, but at 100 and 42,000 miles. As I was driving down Route 2, both front tie rods let go. And the car came to a screeching halt. Because when the tie rods let go, the wheels just, one goes right, one goes left. And uh, so I scraped off the road, called my brother, 
who came with a case tractor and towed it home, and I hitchhiked to the Capitol. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when I got to meet your brother, um, it was a day that uh, Sam, you were running, um, and you, it, was, it was kind of um, late at night, and um, somebody had to put up your signs. And at that time, your brother would come around with the truck <laughs> and put the signs up as high as, as they possibly right, could. People would tear them down. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, so the two, one, my brother and my mother were the keys to the campaign, clearly. Mother went around and attacked everybody, and, and my brother put signs up. So the name got to be very, uh, very knowledgeable, uh, very well known. But my favorite story of my brother putting up signs, the... Chachka brothers, who were lawyers in uh, Norwich, Connecticut, said that uh, he could put a sign on the roof of their building. It wasn't being used, and they didn't really care. So he went up and he put the roof, put this 24-foot sign on the roof. Well, he put it on the wrong building, <laughs> so he had to go take it off and move it over one building. So it didn't always voted. work like clockwork. <laughs> but I hope they voted for you anyway. Yeah, so they wish they were fine. <laughs> that was good. That was good. The, the, um, when you look back now, Sam, what... What do you think your some of the best legislation that you saw coming out of your time, either in the House, uh, the State House, or in Congress? Right. Well, the uh, you know it's funny. Some of the battles you would not believe. So I was supporting a bill to uh, put curb cuts and have cities do curb cuts for handicapped people and. UPS and FedEx people with their hand trucks and people with baby carriages. Well, Jerry Stevens, who wasn't a bad guy and was the Republican uh, minority leader in the House, he went ballistic. It was a brutal battle. And, you know, he foresaw cars driving up on the curb and killing people and all. And it was just incredible. And um, and so everything from kind of mundane things today to putting uh, to giving people rights to have hearings on their utility rates in their hometown uh, when um, when the actual people could go. Because before that, they'd run these uh, meetings in Hartford in the middle of the day when the average worker could or family could not get there, and you'd never hear from the local people, and the rate hikes would pass without content. But I had my fight with liberal groups as well, uh, uh, Nader's group. I think they're down the hall here, CCAG, they wanted lifeline rates. So the first 500 kilowatts would be cheaper. And I said, well, it sounded like a good idea, you know, help poor people. So then I, uh, I asked for uh, the utility usage uh, by income zip codes. And it turned out poor people used a lot of electricity. Why? People like us, we eat at restaurants. Uh, my wife has one house, I have another house. Both of our electric bills are lower as a result of that. Um, so when you looked at it, there was no correlation between low energy bills and, and how poor you were. So you know all these things that have worked out better now with some aid for energy use and what have you, based on income and, and, and all those things, have made a big difference. In Congress, uh, you know, for the first thing that people I don't think understand is the best part of all these jobs is what you learn. I mean, you have a curiosity. You, you know, from a, if you have a curiosity about building, you build, bring in builders. If you have a curiosity about the economy, you call up you know, somebody at University of Connecticut or Yale who's a Nobel laureate in economics, and they, they're happy to sit down and tell you everything. And um, 
So across the people come to you with problems and sometimes. So we got hospice covered for Medicare because before the federal government would pay for you if you stayed in a hospital for a thousand or two thousand dollars a day. But a hospice facility that only cost a couple hundred dollars a day in those days, they wouldn't pay for because it, it wasn't a hospital and they only paid for hospitals. So we pointed out you save a lot of money by doing this and it's a not nicer way to treat people as they're going out. So those things. One of the cases we had was um, a lot of embassies bring over their own nationals to work in the embassies in Washington, D.C. And then they take their passports away. And then they abuse them. They work them seven days a week. They abuse them sexually. They, 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 they physically abuse them. And then if they'd come to the U.S. government for help, we'd send them back to the country they came from where they had no rights. So we did uh, the first uh, bill on sexual exploitation uh, for an international convention. And, you know, again, you end up fighting the guys whose side you're on and the people who are against it all together. Because the people whose side you're on, they want a bill that immediately bans the country from all interactions with all other countries and declares war on them and, you know, and everything else. And you can't get that passed. And on the other side, there are people, government shouldn't do anything, the economy will take care of it or whatever. So I ended up being with a very right-wing Republican, Chris Smith of, uh, of, of, of uh, New Jersey. And we got the bill through that was the first bill that created a position in the State Department to deal with sex trafficking. And, you know, it, sometimes the families are involved. You're a poor family up in the hills of a country and you got seven, eight, ten kids. And some guy comes along and says, I'm going to take your daughter to the city. We're going to make her rich and we'll give you two thousand dollars. Well, you may have a suspicion how she's, you, they're going to get rich on her, but you got to keep the rest of the family alive. And people do those things. So uh, that was actually a very fulfilling thing. We did things on trade. Um, we had some insane laws on restricting the sale of American goods. And the first fight I got into with the State Department, I think Baldridge was the guy, he was Secretary of Commerce, good guy, Mac Baldridge, Republican, okay. under Reagan. And there was Gerber Scientific up in uh, Vernon, Vernon, Ellington, up there, Windsor. And Gerber was selling, I forget the price, I'm going to make up a number, I could be wrong, for maybe a million and a half or two million dollars, a digital cutting machine. Revolutionized the textile industry. I mean, this this guy, who also was an immigrant, by the way, held an enormous number of patents, developed an incredible business in Connecticut. And he, um, he had this great machine, and countries wanted, I think Czechoslovakia wanted to buy two or three of them because they, they were doing textiles. And the Defense Department said, no, you can't sell it because it's got a 386 chip in it, which you know, was then the fastest chip that you could get for a computer. And I checked, I said, I went to the back to them. I said, we can't give away our technology. They said, well, you can go to Radio Shack in Beijing, and they're already selling 386 chips. So I said, so I called back. I said, you know what? If they want to buy 386 chips from us for $2 million a piece, sell them all they want. And we finally won that fight because it was insane. We got to protect our intelligence and our security, but we shouldn't cripple our business when there's no, you know, benefit. You know, it's kind of interesting, though, that you talk about um, securing our intelligence and whatnot now, and, and yet we have a president that thinks Russia is Oh, not it's, well, I think I, I heard the other day on uh, MSNBC 
that the reason he doesn't want people to see his loans, and I don't, you know, it's only one source so far on this, but it makes sense, that in order to borrow money through Deutsche Bank, he has Russian oligarchs as co-signers for the loans. And so he's indebted to them and it can't, you know, and I think that might be it. And, the, you know, the, the great thing about it, as you know, having been a state rep and uh, lieutenant governor and is when you go out and meet all these companies and the people that work in them, sometimes it's not easy. So I was out at uh, Command in Musip, and I was against the B1. And, you know, a friend of mine who was against why, the... Why were you? Because it was a terrible plane. We've never really used it. The B2 turned out to be a great plane. It was a stealth bomb fighter, made a lot of sense. I supported that. But the B1 made no sense at all from an economic you know, strategic view. A friend of mine who was also against it said it was the best designed plane in the history of the world. I said, well, what do you mean? If it's the best designed plane, why are you against it? Oh, it's not a good plane for war. It has more parts made in more congressional districts <laughs> than any other military piece of hardware. So, you know, like the guys in, in, in Musip were building one part of a wing or something. And um, so I went up there, and of course the owner said, "I want you to meet Sam Gadenson. He's voting. He's voting against your jobs." Oh. And I had to explain that, yeah, you might get a few jobs from this little piece you're making, but you're going to lose your jobs on a lot of other products. And the hysterical thing, just on how secrecy works. So Northrop, that was building the B2, wanted me to vote for it, and I hadn't decided yet because I was looking at, you know, the you know, the pros and cons and the costs and everything. And so I went out to California uh, to look at the B-2, and it was top secret. They wouldn't let most members of Congress see it. They wouldn't let the generals see it. They wouldn't let the workers who worked on the plane see it. So when I was standing on a platform above the plane, there were curtains like every 10 feet. And uh, each of those uh, spots... A worker could only get by tunnels, basically, to the spot he was working on so he couldn't tell anybody about this secret piece of equipment. And uh, it was pretty interesting. They showed me the most important secret was where the wing went into the fuselage because that really helped with the quieting of the radar signal of the plane. I said, that's great. So then I back at LAX, ready to fly back to Washington, D.C., and... I bought the usual magazines in the old days. I didn't have them digitally that I usually buy. So I bought Popular Science and Popular Mechanics. On the cover of Popular Science is the whole damn plane, including a highlight on the section where the wing goes into the fuselage and how important that is. And then several years later, my friend Ron Wyden, now a senator from uh, Oregon, was at a hearing on the stealth fighter. And again, they wouldn't talk about it. It was too secret. He took a box out from below. Mattel had already made a model <laughs> of it, and it was out on the street. Uh, you talk about the magazines. All I keep thinking is, at least we knew that that wasn't fake news. That was the real news. It's not fake it's news not either. <laughs> it's the way the president avoids taking responsibility for changing his story and for all the other terrible things. Absolutely. So, true. so Sam, they, you know, a lot of our uh, things that we talk about now is how, how do we get people involved? You know, um, people, there are people that are kind of disgusted about what's going on uh, in Washington um, with this president, and they're either angry enough that they want to get out there and do things, 
or they're disgusted enough, and they're saying, you know, it, none of it's good. Well, we need to he's, get young he, people. He's enough. there because people stayed home. Because they either thought it doesn't make any difference. I mean, the press does this too sometimes. Oh, they're all bad. No, they may not be all perfect, but one's better. And that's all you get in life. And then if you don't vote, you don't count, and it, you have no impact. And I used to, when I was in Congress, um, I think that about then is when uh, they changed the drinking age from 18 back to 21. It had been 21 during the Vietnam War. It was brought down to 18. And then uh, after a while, they brought it back up. And I'd go to these high schools, and the high school kids would be all angry that, uh, you know, some 18-year-olds in early college years angry that they couldn't drink anymore. I said, well, it's your own fault. They said, what do you mean it's our fault? Congress did this. The, you know, the, the state house did it. I said, did you ever vote? You know, like one out of 50 hands would go up. Well, you didn't vote. They didn't listen to you. They don't take away rights from old people. We vote. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's true. It's one way of, of selling and, it. You know, and for my, my, my parents fled Hitler and Stalin. And that's one of the lessons when I was in Congress. People go, there are some people who are always against right-wing dictatorships. Some people are always against left-wing dictatorships. I grew up, they're all bad. When they kill your relatives, it doesn't matter what their ideology is. And so, um, you know, get, when you have an opportunity without risking your life, I mean, we get to vote by just getting up in the, oh, it's raining, I'm not going to vote today. It's, <laughs> oh, the polling places, it's down the street too far. Yeah, other people are getting shot at trying to vote. I'm on, uh, Madeleine Albright runs this organization called the National Democratic Institute. We do election monitoring and training around the world. I've been in places where people still have the physical scars of being shot at, imprisoned uh, for trying to get freedom and the vote for their people. And the fact that we, we, yes, it's raining, it's cold. I agree we should have the whole day off. I think voting ought to, ought to be, you shouldn't have to register. That to me is insanity. If you're an American citizen, you ought to be able to vote. And, you know, even in this state, which I love dearly and I think is better than 90% of the other states, if you miss a weekend at home, you can be off the ro ro rolls. I mean, I, you know, I know people who've lived in the same town for 50 years and they show up on election days. Oh, we sent your card. You didn't send it back. Well, we all get a lot of important things in the mail, so we're really paying attention to it. You're a citizen here and there is no, no, there is, there's, I wouldn't say there's not even a quarter of a percent of fraud in voting. And I'll tell you one quick story. I was, uh. I had a couple of close elections, so I, was, yes. I, I, I did some election work in Congress, and Loretta Sanchez beat Bob Dornan, who was known as B1 Bob. He was, he, he, was, he was in the National Guard, and the only thing he ever did was jump out a perfectly good plane and crashed it into the water off California. But uh, he was a very right-wing, uh, very articulate. Uh, I say he was like a good hard drive without a processor. He had a lot of facts, but he'd come to the wrong conclusions all the time. So B1 gets beaten by Loretta Sanchez, and the Republican leadership decides stolen by illegal Mexicans. So we take a look at it, and I pull the Republican guy. I said, I don't think this is a good discussion for us to have. 
It makes us appear to be racist. And let me tell you something. If people are here illegally, they avoid contact with official government. They don't go down to register and vote as illegals. No, we're gone. So they, we end up on the floor, and I think his name was Bill Thomas. He had one house with 50 people vote, registered to vote in it, all different names, another one with like 25, and prima facie evidence that this is fraud. Of course, he hadn't done his homework. I said, that there are a lot of different names in those two houses. One is a Marine barracks, and the other one was a nunnery. <laughs> and, you know, it's just insanity that, you know, that this conspiracy theory just grew out of nothing. And part of the reason, Hispanics used to vote Republican almost as much as they voted Democrat, sometimes more so because of abortion and the church issues. Now they're all heading to the Democratic Party because these people have alienated them so much. But it's, and, so, it's, so, it's so scary, Sam. We're talking years and years ago, and it's happening now. It's happening in our country now that people are getting restricted from going out to vote. Oh, absolutely, this absolutely. And, and, and this, this president and this Congress is not doing anything to, to stop it. One, the Republican Party of California and the Republican Party of New Jersey were both penalized for voter, you know, interfering with people's right to vote. And this isn't a new phenomenon in the United States, by the way. No, it's not. In the 1850s or so, maybe it was a little later, there, there was the Know Nothing Party. And that party was afraid that we, the country would be taken over by the Vatican, that the Italian immigrants and the and the Irish immigrants who were coming here, who were Catholics, unlike the Protestants, they were the majority that founded the country, would turn us into an arm of the papacy. And that's what I want people to remember. You know, Bob, he's, well, he's not really a racist. He says some racist things. Okay, let me ask you this. How would you feel if when he came down that escalator when he announced, instead of saying most Mexicans are criminals and rapists and there's some good Mexicans, if he said... Jews are all criminals and thieves. Yeah, there's some good ones. Irish are all criminals and thieves. Yeah, there might be some good ones. How would you feel then about his policies and his actions? Would you be so forgiving for what is clearly his racist ploy to get reelected? Now, Republicans have done this for a long time. I know it's not polite to say these things. They used to call it the Southern strategy. And what was the Southern strategy? It was to take white Democrats from the South and get them to vote for Republicans by trying to make it clear that Democrats were for black people. That's the same racist policy, and Trump just added a little bit more juice to it. They should have been embarrassed then by their Southern strategy, and they should be embarrassed now. And when I see people, Jewish people, Irish people, Italian people, all these groups were discriminated against at one point. And what I tell people, just because they started with someone else doesn't mean they won't get to you. Yeah, they stand up. They didn't, you know, I didn't stand up because they came for somebody Pastor else. Pastor Nemo. And there was nobody there. Pastor Nemo, for young people, was a cleric in Germany. And he's famous for having written this letter that basically said, first they came for the communists, and I wasn't a communist. And then they came 
you know, for the Jews and the unions and the Catholics. And each time it didn't affect me. And then they came for me, and by then it was too late. I was, was all nobody, alone. And there was nobody to stand up for me. Well, Sam, I got to thank you. Uh, we're running out of time, and, and uh, this was absolutely wonderful. I really do appreciate it. You sharing the stories and the feelings, and, and it, it's people have to understand, I think, that, you know, they think that 1974 or 1981 was a long time ago. Um, but when we see that some of the same things are happening now, we've got to stand up and use our voices. And I want to thank you, Sam, for all the years that you did use your voice to stand up and defend so many people and taking care of uh, the state of Connecticut, but in, in, in getting your word out there to the entire world. So thanks, Sam. Thank you. Eternal vigilance, the price of liberty.